What up, people? I'm Derek Pitts, Chief Astronomer and Planetarium Programs Director at the Franklin Institute Science Museum in Philadelphia. I do science. Well, I don't do science, and you'll hear more about that later. But earlier this month, producer Nancy Wyatt and I hit the road to Philadelphia to hang with the coolest astronomer on the planet, and we had a blast. So what do you think space sounds like? Maybe there are techniques where you can hear things. Or if you were going to choose a song or a composer, is there some music that you think typifies how space sounds? <laughs> I do have a favorite. It's, it's a very obscure uh, composer. Um, it's a guy named John Seary, S-E-R-R-I-E. John is a really unusual guy. Uh, John, for many, many years, has composed music for planetariums. The music that he creates has this wonderful floating, ethereal, layered structure that to me is very much evocative of what I think the universe would sound like in music. So when it comes to science and things like astronomy, there's a part of my brain that's, that kind of gets it, but the whole idea seems still so theoretical. Yeah. What do you say to people to try to help them make something that's zillions of years away something that's real? So number one, you're not alone, okay? Everybody has the same problem, and that's because all this stuff is so far away from us. And the other piece of this, number two, is it's not part of our everyday lives. It's not part of our normal realm and world of operation. So we don't think about this stuff very often. So how do you do that? Okay, so the way you do this is you take people outside and you show them things. And you show them things in a certain context. And one of the things we can do when we're outside is we can look at the moon, we can see where it is in the sky, and then you see the little dot next to it that's so small. And when you come to understand that that's the largest planet in the solar system, and you sort of get it that it's much, much farther away, and you can tell because it looks so much smaller... Then what happens is the sky goes right into 3D. It goes... <laughs> and what you see is you see first the distance between the Earth and the moon. And you go, oh, yeah, okay. And then when somebody says, see that dot right there? That dot is 484 million miles away. Then people go, whoa. And the sky goes into three dimensions. Now it starts to make sense. Now if I add to that the telescopic view of that same object, first you saw it with your eye, now you see it with the telescope, and you, you get how the telescope works, then you're like, wait a minute, oh, wait a minute, oh, wait, I see. The 
things like light years and billions and trillions of miles, they just, they don't compute. No, they don't compute. They don't make any sense at all. They don't make sense. And, <laughs> and to regular people, you know, to like the guys on the corner, like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Well, you know what? None of us know what that really means. We know that these are large numbers and we know that they equal big distances and things like that. But has anyone ever seen a billion of anything or you know, a few tens of billions of anything? Yes, you have. In fact, you've seen a trillion. You've looked at the national debt. Oh. <laughs> there we go, okay? Like, Dollar Whoa. bills, okay? Yes. But you have seen this. If you've been in a thunderstorm, you've seen raindrops by the billions. If you've been in a snowstorm, you've seen snowflakes by the billions. If you've been on a beach, you've seen billions of sand grains. Now, here's the thing to do. Convert those billions of sand grains into stars. And now what you have is you have, on that beach, you have fewer grains of sand than you have stars in a galaxy. What? Right? Oh, man. Okay, so we just did a big scale jump, yeah. But you, 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 now what you can do, Nancy, is you can go hold the sand grains in your hand and kind of let, let them sift through. And then imagine that these could be stars, and that there were billions of these stars in every galaxy, and there are literally hundreds of billions of galaxies. It's a, and you know what? The thing to do is just say, hey, it's a lot. How do we even know that the stuff you're saying is real? Yeah, that's a really great question. All right, it's all so far away, we can't touch it, we can't taste it, we right. can't do any of that. So what we have to do is we have to rely on our remote senses. Our remote senses carry out into space all the same things that we use to understand how something is. It takes our vision, it takes our hearing, it takes our sense of smell, it takes our sense of touch. All of those things are now put into an electronic form in a spacecraft that then goes out to these places and does what our senses would do for us and then sends us that information back. So this is how we know. So we'll send a spacecraft out to Pluto and it will take fabulous pictures, just fabulous images. And then it will use a device that will look at the electromagnetic spectrum, the other forms of radiation that are coming from the planet. Not just the light, but the heat the, uh, the, the ultraviolet, the infrared, all these other parts of the spectrum that we can't see, and use those to help us tell a story or paint a picture of what this place is really like. Now, since we've built those devices, we know those devices work. We tested them here before they left. Okay. Halfway out, we tested them again. Just before we got there, we tested them again to make sure they worked. Then we collected all that information had it sent back to us, and we tested them again <laughs> to make sure that what we were getting was real data. Now we can convert that data, those radio signals, into the kinds of things we can take in. Audio, touch, visual, the electromagnetic spectrum readings of the other stuff we can't see, and we put all that together to tell us the story of what we see there. And this is how we explore the universe. Provable data, That's true data. Exactly, right. In the face of overwhelming odds, I'm left with only one option. I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. I understand that there have been science deniers all the way back to Galileo. Sure. I mean, back then we didn't have this, the kind of information that we do now. Right. 
So what's up with the science deniers that exist now? You've just talked me through sure. a way of explaining that that stuff is real. Mm -hmm. That really, what it, what do you think is is happening? Why are there people now that want to deny climate change or challenge science or even say that having a uh, an understanding of science is in some way against religion. Sure. What's all that right. about? Well, there are a number of different things at work here. One of them is that uh, people are not as inclined to study science to a high degree as we used to be. It's Although it's part of our curriculum in the national school system, only now is science under the term STEM beginning to see the kind of attention that it really should have had for the last four or five decades. So since about the early 1960s, the amount and quality of science education that's been happening as a whole has been declining. And that's partially because the folks that have uh, been going into the profession of teaching have not been very good at science because they weren't taught well about science. And we also don't, we haven't really understood clearly how people learn and how people learn science. So that's the first part. The second part of this is that in the world today, we have many more quote-unquote trusted sources of information than we did before. When I was growing up, there were fewer trusted sor sources of information. If you wanted to go with television news, there were three networks, maybe four networks that gave you your news and you would identify the person that you trusted and that was the station you went with. Or there were other trusted people. For example, in the community where I grew up, the trusted figurehead was the church pastor. Okay. Okay? And the deacons, they were the trusted authorities, the trusted sources for information. Nowadays, we have many, many more sources of information available to people at a whim. So I can pick and choose the source that agrees with what I think. Furthermore, I can find an affinity group of people who believe what I believe, too. So if we all believe the same thing, guess what? We must be right. And who's to tell us we're wrong? I don't have to believe you. What you say sounds like double talk to me. And since I can't understand it because my science education wasn't very good, then why should I believe what you said? I get it. I can go to my affinity group, and they will all support me. And we'll stand up with a very loud voice and say, yes, we're right. And then other people will say, hey, they must be on to something. <laughs> and the beat goes on. And the beat goes on. I struggled with science in high school. I, I'm telling you this, I'm bearing my soul. I flunked my physics final, okay? And I've always looked at science as it's just like overwhelming. That's because you didn't have a good teacher. I believe that. It's exactly the reason why. You didn't have a good teacher. If you had a good teacher, that never would have happened. Did you have a good teacher? I did have a good teacher, yes. I was really, really lucky. I had this, especially in eighth grade, I had this wonderful woman, Beth Showell, who was my ninth grade chemistry teacher. And she was fabulous. Opened up the world of science for me in a way that I'd been interested in science before, but the way she put it together was like, whoa, wait a minute. It was putting things into a context that fit into our everyday lives. You use this material. This material is made of this. This thing that you see in front of you is built with atoms and molecules, and if you could magnify it enough, you could see them all. But they're all held together by electromagnetic principles, and 
because the bonds are so strong, they don't come apart. Oh, and then she said, here's another example. You know how strong the bonds are? The bonds are so strong that if I take this particular substance and I try to break it down, I need dynamite to blow it apart. But when I do that, I'm going to create an atomic explosion because the forces that hold the atomic nucleus together are so intense that once we release them, it creates a gigantic explosion that can't be created any other way. Wow. And that's why all the atoms and molecules stay stuck together. It's like, oh, my gosh, whoa, wait a minute. So what she did was, in that one sentence, she explained atomic structure that forces between the, the you know, uh, protons, neutrons, and electrons. She explained how atomic bombs work. She explained how atomic energy works. And she explained how, if we could capture this, we could power we could s- supply the world's energy needs with no trouble whatsoever. She rocked your world. She rocked my world. She's totally, rocking my world totally right now. Totally rocked my world. How you're expressing it yes. to me. talked about a basic level of science literacy because you've already talked about like in my case being taught badly yes what would that basic level of science literacy look like the basic level of science literacy should be that people understand the basics of biology chemistry physics mathematics so that they would be able to graduate from high school understanding how the world of science works. And I mean that they understand those basic principles of how these different disciplines work together uh, to manifest what we see in the world. And so that requires that they understand basic chemistry, uh, chemical reactions. They understand uh, the the laws of physics. They understand uh, basic mathematic principles of how these things work together. They understand electromagnetism to some degree. Not to the degree of, you know, master's degree or PhD, but at least they understand how all of these different disciplines work together to manifest the world that we have. People don't understand that these days. I mean, it's still possible that people don't understand the difference between solid, liquid, and gas, okay? And those are just the basics. We haven't talked about plasma. We haven't talked about superconducting things. None of that stuff. But I think the other one that I would add is people need to understand mechanics. Mm. They just need to understand mechanics. People believe people get on planes to fly to places with no understanding of how an airplane works, so wait, are you going to believe in science or not? You believe in it enough to get on a plane to fly to California or to fly to Las Vegas so you can gamble, which is something you shouldn't do <laughs> simply because of the mathematic probabilities behind that. But you'll gamble on getting on an aircraft, not understanding how it works. So wait, let's, let's, let's pick our avenues here of what we're right. going to do. Right. So I think those are, that's, a basic, that's, a, that's the basic sort of education that people should have about science. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium. You've got a motto, eat, breathe, do science, sleep later. Can you explain what you mean? Yes, I can. To me, the world is... It's all science. Everything about the world is this integration of all of these basic sciences and mechanical things that all go together to make everything work the way it does. 
The physics of the universe sets up the chemistry, that sets up the biology, that sets up evolution. And the mathematics describes all of these things, and they all interact to manifest everything we see in the universe. Everything. Our voices here in the room, the recording that we're doing, the way in which galaxies collide, all of those things are manifestations of how the universe all works together. I can't look at something without thinking about how that works. Just generally speaking, very much how we consider our smartphones. We have a box. We press the button on the box. It works. We have no idea what's inside the box. You're right. Right? There could be little people in there pulling levers and <laughs> stepping on things and little teeny, little teeny, teeny, little teeny, teeny, teeny people. people in there. No, of course not. But for all intents and purposes, maybe it's just a bunch of magical stuff in there from Hogwarts. Because we don't know what's in that. So what's happened to us is that becoming a consumer society and a service society as opposed to a manufacturing society, we have no idea what goes into making things. We just don't know. We don't see things being made anymore. You've never seen an airplane built. You've never seen a, a, a railroad train being made. You don't get to go into the surgical suite and see how a surgeon does open heart surgery. By the way, I have. Oh. It's totally fascinating. I want to be a surgeon when I grow up. <laughs> I've been in a salt mine. I've seen how salt is mined. I want to be a salt miner. But I say this because we've separated ourselves from all of these processes that show us how things work. So we don't have any idea of how this stuff works. We need to understand how this stuff works so that we can better understand how this world goes together. Note to self, go to a steel factory and see steel made. Go to every go to any chance you manufacturing get. process wow. you can see. It's completely fascinating. If you met my father, you would not believe my father did what he did. My father presented as if he was a Georgia farmer. That's how he presented. He had a, a deep Georgian accent. Uh, he had the mannerisms and dress. He was a southern gentleman, all these different kinds of things. And he liked to keep a garden, liked to keep a big garden. But you would never guess that this is a guy to whom the Navy would bring a new, newly designed and built radar set that didn't work, and they'd drop it on his bench and say, we don't know what's wrong with this. Can you fix it? And he could fix it. And I'll bet, I know, I saw him do this. I've seen him fix these radar sets with nothing more than a voltmeter, a volt and ammeter, and a little screwdriver. What? And, and not only that, but it's amazing. I've seen him fix all manner of things, just anything. He could fix anything. And if you'd listen to him with his Georgia draw, you would think this guy doesn't know anything, but he could fix anything. Anything, anything, anything. And I learned from him a couple things. One thing I learned from him is that if somebody else built it, you can fix it. Right? Nobody's smarter than you are. You can fix it. You can figure out how they, fi how they built it. If you can figure out how they built it, you can figure out how to fix it. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing I learned. Second thing I learned is that if you can't quite figure out how it was built... Go to the library, get the schematic drawing for the thing, read the schematic drawing, and then build, fix it. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, now I get it, <laughs> right? This little skill called reading. Right, and asking questions. And asking questions. And here's the thing I learned from him about asking questions. My mother thought that my father was kind of loony, kind of crazy, because if he was fixing something, 
he talked to himself the whole way through. And he'd ask himself questions. And this was the way for him to frame in his mind how this device worked. What does this piece have to do with this piece? How do they relate to each other? Are they communicating properly? Are they doing what they need to do with each other? What I do nowadays whenever I work on any piece of equipment is I'm constantly talking to myself, sort of verbalizing what I'm seeing and laying out in my mind a mental map of how this thing is put together and how it should work. Well, we both talk to ourselves when we work, so you've made me feel a whole lot better. I think it's, I think it's a mark of a genius. <laughs> Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour. It's orbiting at 19 miles a second, so it's reckoned the sun that is the source of all our power. Now the sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day. In the outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour of a galaxy we call the Milky Way. Okay, can you tell me this? Why is the Milky Way so important? It's a candy bar, okay? So. And that's not enough? <laughs> <laughs> what, you need more? Okay. I guess we can talk about the rest of it. Yeah, just as an, ex an example of something up there that has importance, what, what's the story with the Milky Way? So it has two, two levels of importance. The first level of importance is what it means to humans on the planet. For as long as humans have been on the planet walking upright, maybe even before then, looking up into the night sky at night a long, long time ago when the sky was really, really dark, there wasn't any artificial light, the Milky Way stood out against this dark velvet carpet of night as this band of light that stretched across the sky that was so much farther away and could only be seen at night. And so what this did was it began to conjure in people their imagination of what these lights could be out there. And it, of course, it ranges everything from being ancestors having passed on into the sky to representations of deities that we created that have some effect on our lives but it creates this primal connection to the cosmos that we all have. If you take anybody out into a dark sky, once they get over their fear of being in the dark because they've been in an urban environment for too long, everyone is just aghast at the beauty of the Milky Way as it stretches across the sky. On the other side, here we are looking at our neighborhood of stars. This is the neighborhood in which this star and planet live. It's our most immediate neighborhood for a very long time. It was the only universe we knew. We didn't really understand how big the universe really is and how many other galaxies there are until the early 1900s. So up until that point, we thought what we saw of the sky was the universe the only universe. And of course, that begins to conjure up all sorts of questions out of the curiosity regarding, are we alone here? Are we the only ones we haven't seen anybody, haven't come into contact with anyone else? What do you think? Oh, okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so. Is there life? Is there something else out there? So, Nancy, here's what we have to do. First, we have to just work the numbers. Let's work the numbers. Okay. Okay. 
So we've now come to understand that there are probably a trillion galaxies in the universe, oh one trillion. God. Just arguing from the point of view of the sheer numbers alone, the numbers say it should be that there's plenty of life elsewhere in the universe. Wow. Okay? That's what it suggests. Okay, what's the reality? The reality is we've never come into contact with anything else. Why not? It's huge. This, we do, we do not understand how big the universe is. We do not. Oh, sure, yeah, let's talk about, well, it's, you know, six, six million light years to here and a thousand light years to there and all this other sort of stuff. But we have no real understanding of what that is. These are number groupings that make sense that allow us to have some hierarchy so we know, relatively speaking, what's what. It's almost like we have no comprehension. Right. Yeah. We don't even know. That's right. But if I put you in a spacecraft and said, <laughs> it's going to take us three days to get to the moon, you'd say, oh. That you can bad. understand. That's not yeah. so bad. Mm-hmm. But now if I tell you, if I say to you that if you traveled at the speed of light, uh-huh. Really fast. Okay. Really fast. Yes. <laughs> really, really fast? Yes. Okay. If you traveled at the speed of light, it would, take you a, it would take you four years to get to the next closest star. Okay. Four years traveling at the speed of light. Now, that's, I mean, that's really... That's crazy fast. That's crazy that's fast. That's going to generate some heat. It is going to generate a whole <laughs> lot of heat. Yeah, you're right. But the fact of the matter is that that's just the tiniest portion of distance, you know, in our little region around here. That's... That's like nothing. So now let me do it this way. Let me do it this way. I'll put you on a spacecraft and let's go to Mars. Okay. Okay, great. We know how fast our spacecraft can go. They can get us to the moon in three days. Let's go to Mars. How far away is Mars in terms of how long it takes us to get to the moon? Here's how far. It'll take us at least six months to get to Mars. Man. At least six months. That's far. Okay. (laughs) It is far. Now... We want to go to some other star, but we can't travel at the speed of light. We can only travel at, you know, uh, what is it, uh, 36 to 40, 36 to 50,000 miles an hour. That's the best we can do. It's going to take us hundreds of years, hundreds of years, unless we develop some new form of transportation that allows us to go a lot faster. Steady as she goes. Warp six. Warp seven. Warp eight. Sir, heat shields at maximum. Warp nine. The thing about life elsewhere in the universe, I say, sure, there's plenty of life in our galaxy, right? We don't know about it because we live in this celestial backwater over here, this boonies. We are out in the boonies. And the United Federation of Planets has regular conventions, but we just haven't received an invitation yet (laughs) because they don't know we're here because we're so small and so insignificant. (laughs) They don't know we're here yet. Yes. That's right. So for a lot of people, their main connection with the stars, other than looking up at them, is is the astrological chart. Yes. So is astrology, is that valid? Would you consider that a science? Is that, does that have meaning? Yes, it has meaning for some people. Is it a science? No. It's an art form. Okay. It used to be a valid science in that the group of people who described themselves as astrologers were people who kept 
impeccable records of planetary positions, absolutely impeccable. They could tell you exactly when any planet was going to be at what location in the sky. Very valuable information for those to whom this really mattered. Mm. But if we look at it in terms of it being a system by which we can define what's going to happen to us in our, in our lives because of when we were born or where the planets are today, that's a completely different thing. And that's because humans provided the characterization that we have for the planets as they are. And the effects that the planets have on us come from the qualities that we imbued the planets. I see. So it's kind of a circular thing. The way to think about this is, what, what did astrology mean before humans emerged? Did astrology mean anything before humans emerged? No, because the planets didn't have any personal qualities. It took humans to develop that and then apply it. I see. To right? lay all of that to, on. To layer all that on. that on. Right. And, and then we decide to believe it. So being a moon child, a cancer, where I think that home and crying are two things that happen a lot to me that really doesn't have anything to do with the planets and the stars in alignment already. I'm sorry. No. I'm sorry. No. I'm sorry, no. But however, however, (laughs) if that makes you feel better, that's fine. I have no right to trample on your belief. Just don't call it science. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go over a couple of vocabulary words. These are words that my trusted producer came up with and that we're trying to grasp. Wonderful. Black dwarf. I would say a black dwarf is a star whose life has completely run its course. It's burned up all of its energy and all of its fuel, and now it's collapsed and shrunken down into a little ember of what it used to be. Protostar. Protostar. A protostar is a cloud of gas and dust in space that hasn't become a star yet. It's going to eventually turn into a star, but it isn't one yet. I think that. The last one is red giant. Oh, sure. <laughs> stars are like humans in many ways. It's, stars are like humans in some ways. Um, often as humans get older, we expand. My belt certainly has <laughs> added a few notches on it. I know that feeling. Yeah, 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 okay. Well, this happens with stars too. As they age, stars get bigger. A red giant star is a star that has passed middle age. It's getting on into its senior years and expanded to a much larger size. That's a red giant. It happens to be red because it's much cooler than it was earlier. So you might think that the hotter a star is, the redder it is. It's actually the other way around. The hotter a star is, the bluer it is. And the cooler a star is, the redder it is. So a very hot star, the hottest stars known are blue supergiants. Huh. Okay? The very coolest stars known, those are called brown dwarf stars. And they are so cool. They're so cool. You can't even see them in the sky. They radiate energy, lots and lots of heat. You know, like, imagine you had an iron on in a room. Lights off. You can't see the iron. But you could figure out how to find it. 
You, know, you could either look for the cord, <laughs> or you could feel around for a heat source. Right. Well, that's like astronomers finding brown dwarfs in space. Astronomers essentially feel around in the dark looking for things using equipment to do this, and brown dwarfs are the coolest stars available. Most things are very far away. We can't see most of the stuff that's out there, so we have to use these other methods of detecting stuff. So we use the infrared and the ultraviolet and the gamma ray. And now we're beginning to do this really cool one, gravitational wave detection. Gravitational wave is the vibration of an event that's happened somewhere out in the universe that's transmitted by the, ready for this? Transmitted by the space-time continuum. Ah. Here we are all talking about the fabric of space-time and vibrations that travel through the fabric of space-time that can only be felt by the most sensitive of equipment ever, ever, ever made. But we can tell exactly where these things happen. We can never see them. We'll never see them. Man. But we can tell that they happened. We can tell where they happened. We can tell how big it was. We can tell how long ago it was. And that also helps to shape our understanding of the picture of how the universe is. You know, in, in hearing you talk, and just it's, it's so vivid to be in the room with you and watch you and your whole body as you describe science. Is there a reason that you ended up uh, working in, with astronomy as opposed to even being an astronaut yourself? Did you ever want to be in space? Uh, well, uh, I love astronomy. I've always loved astronomy. But my first love was to be an astronaut. I would have been an astronaut. I grew up in the early 1960s, late 50s, early 1960s. I didn't know anybody who knew anything about aviation aeronautics or how to become an astronaut. I didn't see anybody who looked like me who was in aviation or aeronautics or astronautics or was an astronaut. Never saw anybody like that at all. Did not know it was possible for that to happen. And it's kind of a touchy thing because, uh, honestly, 100%, if I wanted to be an astronaut at that time, I would have had to have become a military pilot. I would have had to go overseas. I would have had to use the equipment I was given to prosecute the mission at hand. And I'm not, I'm not really down with that. I'm a pacifist. I'm not interested in doing that. And that would have been the only path. That would have been the only path. At that point. That would have been the only path at that point. But if there was anything that I would have wanted to do, that was it. Wow. That was it. I was totally fascinated with the idea of being an explorer of that type. The risk is extraordinarily high, but the people who did that were extraordinarily skilled. Armstrong is on the moon. Yeah, Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon on this July 20th, 1969. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I think that was Neil's quote. I didn't understand it. <laughs> no, one small step for man, but I didn't get the second phrase. So it's interesting because there's that phrase, if you see it, you can be it. Yes. Oh, you, my gosh. So you didn't see African-American No, I didn't see African-American astronauts in, in, in aviation or anything. Didn't see anything like that at all. But you didn't see any black 
astronomers either, did you? No, but I could read about it. I see. I could study it, right, because I could study physics. I could look at the posters. I could do any of that kind of stuff, right? That was easily, that was immediately accessible, you know. But to be, a, but to be an astronaut, I have to be a pilot. So I have to be able to get to an airplane. I don't know anybody at that time, which is actually a really interesting thing for me because much later in life, you know, in, within the last 10 years or so, I've been very closely associated with the Greater Philadelphia Chapter of Tuskegee Airmen. These are, as you know, these are gentlemen who were World War II fighter pilots, some of the, the, best, the best quality pilots you can find. But I didn't know about them. If I had known about them, I would have found one of them to teach me how to do this, to learn how to do this. Our education system. Uh, exactly, yeah, exactly. Again. Because so much of it, also so much of it is about exposure. I know, for example, that if I take, if I take children to go see a rocket launch, I don't have to say anything, just let them see it. And that's what the education system needs as well. Not only the great instruction and the understanding of how people learn, but also the exposure so that kids know what's out there to do. Right. It's absolutely true. Okay, we're going to ask you a couple of quick this or that questions, all right? Yes. Total fun. Yeah. Okay. Star Wars or Alien? Star Wars. Why? I like the story a lot better. I just like the story a lot better. It has a lot more different kinds of technology involved, things like that. talks about a whole other realm of our existence as humans because now we're out exploring the universe and we're flying around and we're coming in contact with different you know, species and things like that. Yeah, that thing coming out of John Hurt's stomach is pretty horrifying. Not working for me. I have to sleep at night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Isaac Newton or Isaac Hayes? Really? Yes, really. Isaac Hayes. Isaac Why? Hayes. He's too cool. <laughs> I can appreciate Isaac Newton. I have a great appreciation for Isaac Newton. But Isaac Hayes, come on. Yeah, for sure. He's a bad mother. Yeah, you said it. <laughs> That's right. Um, Saturn or Venus? Saturn. Saturn because it has a very complex system of moons. Some of those moons have icy crusts, and radar studies indicate to us that underneath those icy crusts are oceans of liquid water. That indicates that there's a possibility that uh, there could be life, a different form of life, or some other life forms right here in our own backyard, rather than somewhere else across the universe, could be right here in our own backyard. Holy mac. Yeah. Okay. Milky Ways or Snickers? Sorry, it's payday. <laughs> right? <laughs> Come on, it's payday. Caramel, I know, that's oh. pretty good. Okay, uh, the Big Bang Theory or the X-Files? Big Bang Theory. Why? Uh, the, the, the reason why is because the X-Files uh, get to be too outlandish, too fantastic, too non-realistic, whereas... Big Bang is a little closer to reality for how we have portrayed scientists, uh, but in that program, at least, we've gone as far as to show that not only can uh, men be scientists, but women can be scientists. Not only 
can they start out as nerds, but they can actually evolve into real people. So there's a chance for us. And it also shows that scientists are real people who like to do real things and get into all kinds of human scrapes. That's much more realistic. And what's this? Oh, a protostar or a red giant? Protostar. Protostar because it's the beginning of a new solar system. And in that new solar system, there are all kinds of wonderful new possibilities that could emerge. A red dwarf star, I'm sorry, a red giant star, unfortunately, is on its way out. Oh, dear. Oh, my. It still will be spectacular if it blows up into a supernova, but that'll be its last hurrah. (laughs) I would be really happy if you had sort of like adult science therapy classes. Seriously, because I'm someone, I mean, I told Nancy, I'm going to tell him I failed my physics midterm, uh, Mm, final, and mm -hmm. I still feel dumb, kind of dopey when it comes to science. I I know it's true. I feel that's one area that I just don't feel bright about. If I took you out and showed you examples and you got to feel the examples of everything that happened in, you know, in those laws and principles of physics that you were tested on, you'd say, of course I get it. You know, you remember F equals MA, right? That's Vaguely. a real easy one. Force, I'm mostly seeing my physics teacher's face. Yeah, Mr. see, Berlin. that's not good. That's yeah, not good. That no, no, guy. No. no, force equals mass times acceleration. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, very easy. It's in the beginning of the twilight zone. Yeah, right, right. You <laughs> See, all you need is the context. <laughs> That's, what it, that's really what it's all about is you need context and you need experience. If you have context and experience, all this stuff makes sense. Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour. It's orbiting at 19 miles a second, so it's reckoned the sun that is the source of all our power. Now the sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day in the outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour of a galaxy we call the Milky Way. Well, that's our show. Thanks to the amazing Derek Pitts. Hey, Derek, now I can do science a little bit. Do yourself a favor. Check out all the amazing exhibits and programs at the Franklin Institute in Philly. Go to www.fi.edu for more information. And follow Derek Pitts on Twitter at CoolAstronomer because he is a cool guy. The Giles Files was created by Nancy Giles and Nancy Wyatt. Produced, directed, and edited by Nancy Wyatt. And recorded at our studios in Weehawken, New Jersey. We'll be back soon with another Bafo episode of The Giles Files. See you in the stratosphere. Mm-hmm.